The human trafficking industry is a multi-billion dollar criminal enterprise targeting children. Star of the runaway hit thriller, Sound of Freedom, actor Jim Caviezel tells us all about it. Plus, my tribute to Oscar-winning film director and friend, the late, great William Friedkin, the world over. Begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me an ex post. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. First, some news. On Monday, female Anglican Bishop Joe Bailey Wells addressed the Vatican Council of Cardinals as part of an ongoing discussion into the role of women in the church. Reverend Wells previously advocated for gender equality in an ecumenical meeting in October of 2022, attended by Pope Francis. Then she said that gender equality is part of God's plans. The Council of Cardinals, also called the C9, is a group of nine cardinals. Pope Francis convened in 2013 to help advise him on the governance of the church. This session comes after the issue of women priests and deacons became a particular focus of the first meeting of the Synod on synodality last October. A Salesian nun, Sister Linda Poacher, also advocated before the council. We'll keep an eye on this story and have more to discuss on it next week. He is best known all over the world for his portrayal of Jesus in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ and as Mr. Reese in the global TV hit Person of Interest. He starred in last year's runaway box office smash Sound of Freedom, in which he played former federal agent Tim Ballard on a mission to rescue children from sex traffickers in South America. Here's my interview with Jim Caviezel. It is the fastest growing international crime network that the world has ever seen. It has already passed the illegal arms trade, and soon it's going to pass the drug trade. Because you can sell a bag of cocaine one time with a child five to ten times a day. God's children are not for sale. I want to start, Jim, with why Tim Ballard was so intent that you should play him. Tim saw the Count of Monte Cristo, mm -hmm. and he saw the Passion of the Christ. And initially, Eduardo and uh, Alejandro felt that I wasn't the, you know, Tim, as far as the complete makeup of him. But he goes, no, but what's in his heart is, is what I want. How did you first become aware of his work? Um, well, first through my adoption of my children. Mm -hmm. um, and I became very aware of the dangers of... Um, what goes on uh, around the world, the children. And um, he, um, you know, I, a lot of the agents I worked with over the time had mentioned and talked about trafficking and how really bad this actually is. And, and, um, and then um, that's how his name came up and how I, but it was meeting him that I went, okay, uh -huh. we can do something here. You accompanied him on one of these Underground Railroad missions. A tribe. What was that like? What did you learn there? I didn't actually get to go because I prepared for it. 
Huh. We, they flew me into Salt Lake several, many, many times as I was preparing. Mm -hmm. And I was with one of their uh, key snipers. I was, uh, we did, um, they brought me into the, um, they have a, a simulated room where, like police officers use yeah. in the military to, for training. Then we did actual uh, CQC training with uh, live rounds and everything. And then I was in uh, his war room several times um, watching the mission and, and <clears throat> sat through satellite feeds, um, watched what they were doing and preparing for what was going to happen. Then I, you know, just write notes down. Um, what, what are you looking for in this situation, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and then um, when we got ready to go, he goes, uh, you can't go. It's too dangerous. This one's a bad one. They, they didn't feel comfortable having no, you. No, not right. When they're, they could lose their lead, possibly, or wounded, going into this one particular mission. Carrie didn't want you, your wife, didn't want you shooting in Colombia. But you did shoot She in wanted Columbia. me to do the film. Yeah, but it not It was just going down there. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, it's a beautiful San country. Diego Don't get me wrong. Would yeah. have been a better alternative. Right. But you go to Colombia. You all flew in, like, on a prop plane to get to Cartagena. Uh, no, that was more like Santa Marta. Okay. They were Santa Marta, th that one. But then, then we went into the Medellin area, and then that was kind of And what did you hairy. see there? This was a very different, I mean, this was actually, yeah. actually an area held by the cartel. So when they're coming up to you and talking to you, um, Alejandro noticed it first. Nor normally when the guys are coming up and trying to sell you something, they'll say, do you want cigarillos and mm -hmm. whatnot? And they'll say, you know, do you want mujeres, women? Um, this is the first time they were like, do you want mojeres? And then they go, do you want niñas, niños, little boys, little girls? Mm. So that's kind of different world. But we're the biggest consumers of it here in the United States of America. $152 billion a that's year correct. industry. You give me an idea how big that is, Raymond. That's every sports team, professional sports team in the United States, still not $152 billion. Then add on World Cup soccer, you know, all the big Real Madrid, still not enough. All of those as well. And then add on every 18-year-old in the United States going to Stanford University for four years. Every 18-year-old. And that, now you're talking $152 billion. Mm. I, I want to backtrack a moment. You talked about Tim Ballard seeing you in Count of Monte Cristo and the Passion of the Christ. Before we get to Sound of Freedom... I want to ask you what you've learned from some of these iconic actors, directors you worked with over the, your career. Let's start with Richard Harris, who was uh, your, your co-star yeah. in The Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. I think it was his, almost his last movie, second to last, if second not last, last, right? Yes. What did you learn from Richard Harris? You know, I've never told anybody this before, but... I looked at his script, and it had his notes, and he, was, he would like write around the subject, circle the subject, and then he would follow it, and, he, and then he would underline the verb, and then he would carry it over to the direct object. This is how he connected it. Along the way, I worked with some phenomenal pros, so I started thinking thoughts, and I said, well, I bet you that's what Richard was doing back there. Connecting the ideas I, and the logic. I underline the... all of my mm. stuff now. Sly Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who you worked with in Escape Plan. What did you learn from these two really icons of yeah. action and something you've done a bit of? They train 
extremely hard in their athleticism, mm -hmm. as I did when I was coming up. They train even later in their lives, continually, and they train as hard, and they put all that hard training into the work that they do. Mm -hmm. um, I had a scene with um, Arnold where they shoved a giant pipe down his throat, and he's to go and further. We have to go and further. And the way he would control it, like the governor who would do that scene, and it was very, very, very physical. Um, and no complaints, no complaining, no whining, alone. We were down in the brig in a fight scene, and they've got all this steel and stuff, and he's like, boom, boom, and he grabs, and he's cut, and probably had to get stitches, and he just like, get going. It was Rocky, you know? And, um, and that, the toughness is what I loved mm -hmm. about both of them. They were very, very tough. Well, and this last person is certainly not tough at all on any level. Mel Gibson, what did you learn from working with Mel? He has all the dimensions, right? He has um, the ability to lead. He's incredibly athletic. Mm -hmm. He's a genius actor. I mean, the guy, Shakespeare, you watch Hamlet, that'll mm -hmm. tell you everything. Um, he, if you watch the opening scene of um, Lethal Weapon, mm -hmm. will tell you everything. Mel took it to another le level in the opening scene when he, you see him uh, opening scene of Lethal Weapon, he puts that gun to his mouth yeah. and you see the tears come out. The level of depth that this guy can, can go is extraordinary. Plus, he's the greatest director I've ever yeah. worked for. He's yeah. a filmmaker. I want to get back to Sound of Freedom sure. now because all of these skills, everything you've just told me from each of these men, you really end up utilizing mm -hmm. in this part. When you got the script, what did you think of the role itself and how did you prepare for that? Um, well, you have a battled war hero story, you know. You have the innocence of Tim Ballard. Um, he's like a childlike quality that um, Jesus talks about. I linked into that. I always wanted to do the movie Taken. When I saw that, I said, God, I wish I was available when that happened. Or It was a brilliant film. Yeah. Well, this was a Taken with a much bigger heart. Mm. Much, much bigger, and um, uh, it, it, I, I, you know, when you and I talked about it. I, I think what people get turned off by is they hear all these stories about the trafficking of it, mm -hmm. and that. But you learn something about it. Yeah. So a mother and father should be able to protect their kids. They should want to protect their kids. And people what don't realize a hundred thousand children are abducted and and trafficked. In the United States, forget other countries. No, over, That's just in no, the no, United no. States. Three hundred thousand. That high. Three hundred thousand are abducted, are lured into okay. the sex trade a year. Ms. Rojas, okay, um, she on April twenty six, she was giving sworn testimony right in front uh -huh. of the uh, um, House Committee, right, and um, she admitted uh, sworn testimony that eighty five thousand children have gone missing that have crossed the border. Mm -hmm. So it's hitting, it, it, it's not a funny thing, this, this, what's going on right now where we have open borders. Why are you letting these killed kids be taken like this? And they've disappeared, 85,000 children disappeared. That's almost the entire Rose Bowl Stadium. Yeah, and these are the children that were taken into U.S. custody, released into the mainland, and then 
the government oh, yeah. does not know their whereabouts. That's correct. In the movie, we see Tim Ballard. He rescues a boy, and this boy's sister is still being held and used. She is in the possession of a cartel mm -hmm. and the boss of that cartel. Some kind of problem, officer? Oh yeah, that uh, that's a old picture. You know how kids are these days, they, they just grow up so fast. That's him. Is that reality? Is that a true story? Is this based on a true story? It's like the Count of Monte Cristo where you have 1,200 pages and I got to eliminate characters. I got to get them all down to 14. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so is it page by page? No. I think it would be a big mistake if people went and said, okay, this is not page for page perfect. You're going to see things you don't want to see and understand why we couldn't put them in there. Yeah. It's far worse than you can imagine. Yeah. Let's face it, you this can't. is explosive, horrible uh, no. visuals. And the way that's delicately done, where you can imagine it but you don't see it, is really brilliant and opens it up I think to a, yeah. a wider audience than had you gotten very explicit with the material. But the, my purpose would be for a mother to sit there and say oh I just don't want to see that film. Well you know if this gets to your backyard and it is getting to your backyard and it is in many people's backyards and if you go to over 300,000 children a year mm -hmm. are taken aren't you responsible at some point to at least learn what to do how where are they how do, and you learn that in the film. So it's, it's a brilliant thing, a uh, weapon for that parent to go, okay, that guy doesn't belong here. Who is that guy and what's going on over here? My daughter's not going over there. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it would be like driving it to a gas station. Yeah. If people would just look at the lighting, they would go, oh, you know what? This is, I, I might want to drive another block or two. This well, is not a good Tim, place. Tim always tells the story of Harriet Beecher Stowe, mm. who wrote about what was happening in slavery yes. and kind of awakened the conscience of the country long before there was a civil war or Lincoln came around. That's correct. Is that what your intention here is with The Sound of Freedom yes. and Eduardo's and Alejandro's? Is it to sensitize and awaken the conscience of a country and the world? Oh, absolutely. Well, we went, we're going for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Send Washington and all these governments a message that children are no longer for sale. God's children are no longer for sale. Which is a line from the movie. That's that correct. Says. I know your wife was worried about your shooting in Columbia. Tim Ballard and his comrades, they're chasing down some of the most evil people on the planet who mean to and traffic in children. Mm. This is not on its face a happy, sweet subject. No. Was there any hesitation from you as a person, as an actor? No, not. 
Why, Why not? Because the script was too good. And if you've seen Alejandro Monteverde as a filmmaker, so those two things. And, um, you know, frankly, my world changed after The Passion. So this could end up being one of the biggest films I've done. You've said this is the second most important film of your career. Hmm. Passion. The Passion being your first. There's no question. Is the resurrection coming? Yes. How soon? So I went up to him and I asked him that. I said, are we going to be ready? No. Yes. I said, uh, will, be, will we be ready to go by January? And he said, yeah, maybe. And I said, uh, end of the fall? Yeah, maybe. And I said, September? Yeah, maybe. And so now you go. So I, my mind, you'd think I'd say, okay, it'll be January. I'd asked him the same kind of thing when we did The Passion. Mm -hmm. It was uh, in August. It was August 15th that he said, okay, green means go on August 15th. Mm -hmm. It was amazing because all of the Marian feast days, we just kept running into them on that film. Mm -hmm. You know, I like to, I know that she was making that film for her son. What is your prayer for your audience who sees Sound of Freedom? What do you want them to do in the aftermath of seeing this movie? want you to not just think about trafficking. We have to think about grooming. We have to think about that. Mm -hmm. If you cut an arm off of, of an octopus, let's say it's trafficking, what happens? It grows right back, doesn't it? So you gotta take the head out. We have to come together with all the churches in the world, all Christian churches, and unite and take back our children and a republic, it all goes hand in hand. We've got to come together, save our children, and it'll go hand to hand with our republic. And it, we gotta get rid of pornography. That's one of the big ones. You just drive all of the country. All you're doing is creating more pedophiles. The Passion of the Christ is a film that opened my heart, my eyes, gave everything for it. I gave everything for this one. It took two years to, to uh, sleep decently. I couldn't sleep because mm. of this. And so what I'm excited about is that finally the world is going to start moving in that direction. Mm. Is there a sequel plan? There's a script already. They've really? already done a budget on it, but it, obviously it's based on the success of this film. And it's not a two, it's just the next chapter. Mm. This mission goes from Colombia to Haiti, mm. and this one is even better than the first script. Sound of Freedom 2, we'll be waiting. Yeah. Thank you, my friend. Great to Thank see you. you. I was really heartbroken this week to learn of the passing of legendary film director and my friend, William Friedkin. He died in Los Angeles on August 7th at the age of 87. And Billy, as many of you know, won a Best Picture Oscar for the 1971 classic, The French Connection. And he's best remembered for his 73 blockbuster, The Exorcist, on which he collaborated with my other dear pal, the late William Peter Blatty. I sat down with Billy Friedkin numerous times to interview him for this show. It was always a joy. We spent time at his home. He was just uh, insightful, irascible, endlessly engaging, and a true raconteur until the end. I'm most glad to have been able to call him a friend. Here are some of the great moments I had with Billy Friedkin over the years. In 2015, we talked about his amazing life and career, first making a name for himself as a documentary filmmaker and what The Exorcist 
was really about. Spoiler alert, he called it the mystery of faith. Let me start with when you go now to a mm -hmm. movie theater, what are you looking for? Um, intensity, uh, something that, I, that will hold me and um, will make me a part of the story, a part of the characters. Most of the, I don't see a lot of films now. Most of the films I see uh, that are made today um, lack any real passion. They're called um, projects now yeah. in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. They're not referred to as, as movies, let alone films. Yeah. They're all projects. Series. Um, and, and Well, they're designed, you know, just to um, attract the largest number of viewers, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. But I remember a time when films could be considered a work of art. Mm -hmm. I don't see that now. I was stunned to read that the father of The Exorcist, the French connection, Bug, would say the MGM musical is the spine of the American film. Explain that to me. The MGM musical, the great musicals of the late 40s and early through the middle 50s, mm -hmm. really represent the best that American films have ever made. I they agree. were all turned out by a studio, MGM, in a kind of factory wow. manner. Um, they were all vehicles for people like Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. Mm -hmm. But to me, they're absolute perfection in every way. Mm -hmm. The photography, the choreography, yeah. the music, God knows, was by the people who created the American songbook. Yeah. Gershwin, Cole Porter, Rodgers and Hart, Rodgers and Hammerstein. And... The, the, the dances are, that's something that's gone from American film. Yeah. Uh, it's not that um, people wouldn't like them anymore and they've moved on. It's that nobody can do that. Yeah. There weren't many of them. <clears throat> there might have been maybe a dozen. Huh. But to me, they still represent hmm. as close as one can come to perfection in filmmaking. I want to talk about your incredible career and take you back to working Why at... Why lower the level? Well, no, no, I'm taking yeah. it up a notch here. I'm continuing. Mm -hmm. This is called the continuum. Uh, you worked at WGN in Chicago and started doing a lot of live television. What did you learn there that you mm -hmm. later utilized and that colored your work to the present day? Television uh, production is um, very different from film production. Mm -hmm and especially the kind of television programs that I did. They were largely interview programs, Talking panel heads. shows, news programs, sports, mm -hmm. um, a little bit of drama, a little bit of variety, mm -hmm. uh, but the techniques are totally different uh, from film techniques. What I learned, the main thing I learned when I started in the mailroom of a television station, which was WGN, WGN and worked my way up to live television director was that it's very much of a team effort and it's all about communication. In order to get what you want, I learned back then in the late 50s and early 60s, you have to be able to communicate your ideas um, to a crew and a cast before you can communicate to an audience. And what it's all about is communication.
The idea of making a film or putting something on television is about communicating with an audience, and that's all it's about. The difference is this, Raymond, but the painter, the writer, the composer are working alone. The film director is working with a two-ton pencil. You know, um, literally at times, thousands of people on some films, it's a collaborative effort, whereas the other art forms are not. Uh, you met with Blake Edwards about a script treatment he had of Peter Gunn. Mm -hmm. He let you read it, and at that moment, you met someone who would become a major collaborator in a future work, but you were not too hot on the script. I didn't like the script. It was, the script simply said by Blake Edwards, uh -huh. who I had great admiration for. Mm -hmm. I thought then and think now he was one of the great American directors. Mm -hmm. And I was a kid who had done one little film with Sonny and Cher. <laughs> I told Blake I read his script with great interest and thought it was terrible. And when I said, there was a bunch of people in the room. Uh, many of them were sitting in shadows around <laughs> this enormous office Blake had at Paramount. And after I had said to Blake I didn't like the script, I thought it was terrible, and he thanked me, uh, for letting him meet an interesting person. <laughs> and as I was leaving, this guy followed me out of the office on the Paramount lot, and he introduced himself, and he said, I'm Bill Blatty. <laughs> and he said, uh, I'm the guy who wrote that script. <laughs> and I said, what? I says, it says by Blake Edwards. He said, well, Blake often does that. <laughs> he said, but you know, you were right. I think you were right. The script does need a lot of work. We have all said the same thing to Blake, but he doesn't want to hear that. And um, I admire you for your honesty. And I said, well, thank you very much. We shook hands, and that was it. That was it. And four years later, he sent me uh, the manuscript of his novel, The Exorcist. You read The Exorcist in a San Francisco, was it a hotel? It came it's a hotel, hotel room that overlooked the entire Bay Area. Hmm. And you thought what as you sat to read that? I story? thought it was really a, a very uh, powerful and important piece of work. I thought, first of all, this is a great read. You know, th this is a wonderful story, very well handled. The characters were well drawn. Mm -hmm. It was uh, 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 about the mystery of faith, mm -hmm. which you don't read too many no popular novels mm -hmm. coming along that mm -hmm. deal with the idea of faith in a, in a way that can be comprehended. Mm -hmm. And it was a disturbing and powerful story. And I, I was reluctant to read it. I carried it with me on a... I was on the road uh -huh. doing interviews for The French Connection, which right. hadn't come out yet. Mm -hmm. was about to. And the end of my tour was San Francisco, and I opened the book. Oh, and I started to read it, canceled my dinner plans, and Blatty included his phone number at the uh, bottom of the letter he sent me. And I called him, and I said, this is great. And he asked me if I'd be interested in making the film. Bill Blatty always considered this, the book and the subsequent film, an apostolic work, yes. one that would awaken people to the nature of evil and, by proximity, the nature of good and faith. Mm -hmm.
Did you see it the same way? I agree with that. Um, but we came at it from a different mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. Bill came as a believing Catholic, right. which he is. Yeah. And I come to it as someone who believes in the teachings of Jesus Christ, mm. as they're recorded in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. um, and I made the film as a believer, not in all the tenets of the church, right. as Bill does, mm -hmm. but in the teachings of Jesus. Yes, that's, uh, that's still my position. Do you think that's why it has had the staying power and still has the resonance it has, spiritually speaking? You watch that film today. There is no doubt we are seeing the clash of not only good actors and great special effects, but there's something else happening there that between that film and the viewer. Yes, it is a film about the constant presence of good and evil in, in all of our lives mm -hmm. from the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. Cain and Abel, you know, the, the constant, pre the, the Garden of Eden, the serpent. Mm -hmm. uh, there was always, there has always been a powerful demonic force attempting to undo the work of the Creator. Throughout all of history, there has always been, you know, whether he's called the devil or the adversary mm -hmm. or whatever, there has always been this clash of good and evil. It has always been the, the burden of goodness to triumph over the threat of evil. Do you see that as a through line that runs through all your work? That, that notion you just articulated? Absolutely, yes. Hmm. Let's go back and talk about the French connection. It is, even when you watch it today, it is so gritty, it feels so real. A lot of these scenes though, particularly the chase, they were real. You didn't get permissions, you didn't get clearances for any of this. No. Tell me how that happened well, and I, how you did it without getting arrested. Well, I had the cops on my side <laughs> because it was a story about police heroism. Ah. And every off-duty police officer in New York helped to protect the set. Mm. And they were all carrying their badges. And in case I got stopped for breaking every imaginable traffic <laughs> law and other laws in the making of that film, mm -hmm. I had the cops around me to protect me. There's something you say in the book. There is an outlaw quality in so many of your works, particularly The French Connection, The Exorcist. And, and what I mean by that is this, and you, you, at the end of your book you write, good and evil coexist in me in all of us, and I believe it's a constant struggle for our better angels to prevail. This is a theme in all my films and remains a personal struggle. But I've been blessed with a loving, devoted wife and two wonderful sons I dearly love, and they constantly help me suppress my darker impulses. In spite of all the gifts God has given me, I still occasionally harbor anger and resentment. My salvation is to channel them into my work. How is anger and resentment channeled into the exorcist? Well, first of all, uh, I would take out one word if I was editing that today, and that would be occasionally. Okay. <laughs> uh, like everyone else I know, mm -hmm. I harbor all of the worst qualities of humankind. I believe they are built into our DNA. Um, I'm drawn to stories on film in which the characters exhibit those qualities. Mm. 
I'm not drawn to comedies yeah. or love stories or kind of, you know, mindless um, uh, film. Superhero <laughs> antics. Uh, no, I, I, don't, I can't even watch that stuff. I just don't believe it. I don't uh-huh. buy it. Many others do, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. The film industry uh, is built today on the uh, on the idea of superheroes and supervillains, mm. and I'm much more interested in human nature. The mm. proper study of mankind is man, and I guess to put it in a simple sentence, the thing that attracts me. Uh, more than anything about humankind is what Isaiah Berlin called the crooked timber of humanity. Mm. I just um, make films about characters whose natures I think I understand. Mm -hmm. That's all. You made a leap to opera directing. Now, this is a very different a box of tricks and an entirely different approach. You can control everything in film. The angle, the, the, the lighting, the delivery. You can do retakes. Stage is such a different animal. Why did you decide to take on operatic directing? Uh, I've done about 15 operas in about 15 years. I've done some of the great operas ever written mm-hmm. in some of the great opera houses of the world. Not all, but it's... It is not all that different. Really? The great singers that I've had the privilege of working with want the same thing as good actors. They want a psychological underpinning for their characters mm-hmm. and a staging that works. Mm-hmm. You don't have a camera. That's the main difference, right. directing opera. But you're still working with the actor-singers in the same way. They want to give a performance. They don't simply want to come out and give a concert Mm -hmm. because the great operas all tell a story and have characters. I can emphasize characters or de-emphasize them by the way I stage them with someone in the foreground or the background or the way I light them, the the manner in which I set them. There was a moment in Puccini's great Suor Angelica that you directed where the Angel of Mercy appears in that production. And so many people I know who saw it, not all Catholic, were stunned by that moment. You had a major war with the composer over this. Not the composer, he's been I mean, dead. The, the, the conductor, I'm for, sorry, that's for right. For almost Puccini. 100 years, Raymond. <laughs> Puccini's a little dusty right. at this point. Uh, I had conductor. a big problem with the conductor, James Conlon, who's mm-hmm. a highly regarded conductor of mm-hmm. opera. And he's the permanent conductor of the L.A. Opera. Right. And he came to me when uh, I was setting up, because in the finale of Swar Angelica, Swar Angelica asks for the mercy of the mother of Christ. And in Puccini's libretto, he says, the mother of mercy appears. Mm. He doesn't say a shadow of the cross goes across (laughs) the stage, a stained glass window lights up. He says the mother of mercy appears. Mm. And I decided to make that moment real. Mm. And the conductor... Conlon said to me, uh, listen, he took me aside. He said, you know, I had a Catholic education and I don't believe that stuff anymore. Mm. And uh, he said, I wish you wouldn't do that. And I said, Jim, I I don't uh, really want to remind you of this, but this story (laughs) is not about you or what you believe or don't believe or what my 
what I believe or don't believe. I said, I know you read music and conduct it beautifully, but can you read a libretto? (laughs) Can you read where it says here, the mother of mercy appears? That's what I'm doing. Mm. And after we did it, there was not a dry eye in the house. Mm. Men in tuxedos were weeping. Mm. Every woman in the house, non-believers. And Placido Domingo, who's the director of the L.A. Opera Company, said to me, Billy, tonight you have made all of Los Angeles Catholic. In 2018, Billy Friedkin returned to the show to talk about the 45th anniversary of The Exorcist and his return to the theme of demonic possession, for real this time, with his documentary, The Devil and Father Amort. I was even treated to a walking tour of Georgetown's Exorcist locations with the master himself. Watch. Father Amort begins every exorcism by thumbing his nose at the devil. In the room are Christina's family and other priests to assist Father Amort. Joining me now is the Academy Award-winning director of The French Connection and The Exorcist to discuss his new documentary, The Devil and Father Amort. Would you welcome back to the program William Friedkin? Thanks, Raymond. Great to see you. Always Bill. good to see you. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Right. Uh, I want to first talk about something. Clear something up for me. I read the New York Times last week. Maureen Dowd said that you claimed the 1949 case that The Exorcist is based upon was, quote, jive. What does I didn't that mean? I say that I claimed it was jive. The 1949 case, which took place in Silver, uh, in Cottage City, Maryland, mm-hmm. misreported huh. as, as Silver, Silver Spring, Spring right. and a bunch of other places, there's no evidence for that. There's no proof. Mm. What inspired Bill Blatty to write The Exorcist were reports of that case, ah. news reports that said this had happened. This had happened, and it was a case of possession Mm -hmm. and a successful exorcism. Mm -hmm. Now, that just passed along into history without people bothering to do a lot of research about Mm -hmm. it. One fellow did and wrote a story that you can see on Wikipedia, which is definitive. It's called The Haunted Boy of Cottage City, Maryland. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty authentic. And... I believe over the years that I'm not saying that the case didn't happen the way it was reported, but the fact that it was reported was what influenced Blatty. Right. He did not use any of the characters. No, or the circumstances. The place, the circumstance, and he obviously had never seen an exorcism. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Now, Bill said he came into possession of one of the priests, one of the exorcist's diaries years later. That's what I've been told. Did you ever see that? No, but I, you know, I've been told by Bill's wife Mm -hmm. that she still has the diary of the priest who did the exorcism, mm-hmm. Father William Bowdern, at mm-hmm. Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis. Wow. In 1949. This week, we visited a few of the iconic Georgetown locations featured in The Exorcist, and Mr. Friedkin gave us insight into each location. Bill, why this house? Why did you choose this house as the 
house where the exorcism was going to take place. This is the house that Blatty had in mind when he wrote the novel. It was the closest house to the steps, but as you'll see, it wasn't close enough. <laughs> but it was the house. This is the exterior of the house where we filmed The Exorcist. It's 3600 Prospect in Georgetown. As you will see in a moment, it is not anywhere near enough to the steps, which are a good, I don't know, 25 to 30 yards away. So what we did, that fence was not there. We had to put up this fence for her later to protect the house, but that fence wasn't there. What we did was we built a false front and a false extension from the end of that house to where the stairs begin. A lot of scenes shot at that front door, both looking out this way and looking back into the house. This is the beginning of the area of the exorcist steps. 75 steps from just a few feet away to the bottom. Uh, the false front came out to here where these trees are. The girl's bedroom window is just up there where I'm pointing, right up here. And the stuntman went out a window in the sound stage first. He jumped from the little girl's bedroom window in the sound stage and it finished off with a shot of him coming out that window right above me, which looked exactly like the house was extended this far. The stuntman came out of where I showed you, and he landed on that first landing. That's pretty far. All of the steps and the corners were padded with rubber. So he was landing on a padded surface, and he was all padded, but it was an incredible jump from right up there where I just showed you to the first landing where he hit. And that's the only place from which I filmed the jump. I also rigged a camera. There's a shot in the sequence, if you see it again, where I rigged a camera on wires to go out the window so it looks like a POV shot all the way to the bottom where that gentleman is now and over that plate is where Father Karras dies in a pool of blood and receives the last rites from his friend Father Dyer. Now why 45 years later would William Friedkin go back and focus again on something you said you'd never focus again on in film. And I quote you, I would never do anything with demonic possession or exorcism in it. Why do this documentary now? Because I believe in its authenticity mm -hmm. and I would never do anything, I, I still say, in fiction. I would never do a fiction version of it again. Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to meet Father Amort quite by accident. I asked him if I could interview him for Vanity Fair magazine. Mm. He gave me a long, it turned out to be 6,500 word interview wow. for Vanity Fair. That's a book. Yeah. 
<laughs> and it was reprinted everywhere. Mm -hmm. And during the course of the interview, he's the most spiritual man I've ever met, Raymond. Mm. And I asked him at the end of the interview if he would ever allow me to witness an exorcism, mm. thinking he would not. And he said, well, let me think about it. And a couple of days later, I got an email from his, uh, the head of the Pauline Order in Rome mm -hmm. who said that Father Amort would allow me to witness an exorcism on May 1st of 2016. Wow. And I had originally met him in March. So uh, once he said, okay, you can witness this, which permission is never granted. Right, never. I can tell you, never, and rightly so. Mm -hmm. um, I then pushed my luck and said, well, would you let me film it, Father? Mm. And word came back two days later saying you could film it, but alone with no crew and no lights. Huh. So I went in with a little still camera that shoots high-definition video and, sh and sat two feet away from them while they were doing it. Wow. Now, you say the exorcism, and Bill Blatty used to tell me the same thing. The exorcist, he said, is about the mystery of faith. Is that what this documentary, The Devil and Father Amortis? To some great extent, certainly. I mean, there's no proof of anything, Raymond. Mm -hmm. There is not one person in this entire world that knows the greatest philosophers, religious scholars, whatever, do not know if there is a heaven, a hell, an afterlife, why we were born, what our purpose is here. It's never going to be revealed until, let us assume, there is an afterlife. Mm -hmm. But Bertrand Russell, Teilhard de Chardin, uh, all were offering informed opinion and belief. Mm -hmm. But there's no hard evidence. If, you're, if you need a fact, there are those who need to have their hands in the blood mm -hmm. in order to believe. Now, I have tremendous faith in the teachings of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ, but I don't know anything, and neither do people a thousand times smarter than me. Mm -hmm. Give me a sense of the, what this means to you as a filmmaker. You started your career doing a documentary about a man on death row, The People versus Paul Crump, and here you are all these years later doing another documentary focused really on the thing you're probably best known for as a filmmaker, exorcism, the exorcist. Why make that journey? Any trepidation about turning this into a film once you had the footage of the real exorcism? Yes, and I didn't know what I was going to do with it. Mm -hmm. I filmed it because Father Amort allowed me to film it, and the woman and her family said, okay. Mm. Uh, then I thought, well, what... I didn't think I would make a documentary out of it. I thought I would have this to show to interested people. And then I got the thought to take it to some of the leading brain surgeons in the country and the leading psychiatrists. Why'd you do that? Well, I felt that they would either debunk it and, or explain in medical and psychological terms what it was. What did Father Amort and his lifelong example teach you, not about evil, but about good? That a man was there willing to devote his skills and his life to helping to liberate people of what they believed what had them 
completely in check and in choke. Their lives were not their own. And they went to Father Amort as a last resort. And he liberated many of them. But he never believed he did the liberation. They always call upon Jesus to do the exorcism. That's what the prayer is. It's not the priest as, come out as, of there. as yeah. in my film at one point saying, I cast you out. Mm -hmm. It's Jesus that they're praying to, to cast out the demon. Mm -hmm. And that's what Father Mort believed. And I believed in him mm. and still do. What do you want people to take away from this project? After seeing this film, what do you hope it's going to accomplish? Well, it was better said by Shakespeare mm. in his play Hamlet when he had Hamlet say to Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. Mm. And that's my belief. Mm -hmm. I believe there's just so many things that I don't know or understand, but I'm still curious about, mm. but don't know or understand. And hopefully this film, which is not fiction at all, not special effects, not, does not set out to terrify you or show you outrageous events. Mm -hmm. the, the possession enough is outrageous enough. But I believe that this film is a, a, a doorway into that, mm. into more things in heaven and earth. And one of the doctors in the film that I interviewed, who I showed the exorcism to, said, well, and he's the man who's in charge of brain mapping, mm -hmm. said, well, just because we don't believe in something or know something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Ah. It's kind of a double negative, but it's true it nevertheless. Works. We don't know about this, but that doesn't mean it isn't true or doesn't have a name or will not get another name later, like radiation. Right. You know, they knew nothing about it right. when it occurred. Now it's a field of study. Mm. William Friedkin, always a pleasure. Thank Mine, you. Raymond, thank you. I look forward to the next project, and we'll have you back. I always love to come back and to watch this great show. Thank you. You're very kind. Thank you. Thank you, Raymond. Here. My, my dear pal, the great William Friedkin, rest in peace, and I know he's arguing with our friend Bill Blatty. As regular viewers know, we have been covering the ongoing saga involving the cause of Archbishop Fulton Sheen for decades. In full disclosure, I was a member of the original foundation that moved his cause for sainthood over 20 years ago. In 2019, after three years of legal battles, the Archdiocese of New York finally released the late televangelist remains to his home diocese in Peoria, allowing his cause to continue and proceed. However, a bankruptcy process in the Diocese of Rochester, New York, where Sheen once served as bishop, provided yet another roadblock to the advancement of the cause. Joining me now with an update on the status of the Sheen cause for sainthood is the executive director of the Archbishop Fulton Sheen Foundation, Monsignor Jason Gray. He joins us from the Sheen Museum in Peoria. Thank you so much for being here, Monsignor. As Very I mentioned before, the Diocese be of Peoria, uh, it finally received Archbishop Sheen's remains in 2019. That seemed to resolve the last obstacle to the cause. Then weeks before he was to be beatified, the cause was halted. Please explain to viewers how the financial crisis in Rochester had put a halt to the Sheen cause. 
Sure. And that does take us back four years. It's hard to imagine that much time has passed. But in 2019, it was uh, in July that the miracle itself was approved by Pope Francis. And so we were ready to go. Uh, we had actually been um, privately, we had been negotiating a uh, date of September 20th. 2019 for his beatification. That would have been Sheen's 100th anniversary of priesthood ordination. But when the, it wasn't just the bankruptcy in New York, but it was also uh, in, uh, in uh, Rochester, but it was also the fact that there had been a waiver of the statute of limitations. It really was not known at the time whether there would be new allegations of which we really knew nothing. Um, so there was a concern mm -hmm. that something might come forward. And so out of an abundance of caution, the Holy See was hesitant. Uh, we also uh, received some documents that uh, it raised a question as to whether or not Archbishop Sheen had uh, handled any abuse cases improperly. And we got a hold of those documents. Yeah. We, we researched them carefully. And we actually, from Peoria, we went to the Congregation of Saints and the Secretary of State in Rome and made a presentation to prove to them without any, any doubt that Sheen did handle those cases correctly. Uh, he had uh, one case yeah. of a, an abuser he got out of ministry and a second case of a priest who wanted back into ministry and Sheen would not assign him. Uh, he was assigned by the next Bishop of Rochester, but Sheen himself uh, did not did not assign anyone uh, who had been an abuser. So mm -hmm. we proved that to Rome and Rome was actually satisfied with that. And with that, the delayed September date now became a December date. So then we were up to December 22nd, 2019, mm -hmm. and that was public. So we had announced that as a date for beatification. Yep. But there was still at the same time uh, the concern over the investigation the state of New York was going to do into all the dioceses in New York. The attorney general's report was just uh, being undertaken. And so out of an abundance of caution, not knowing what else might come forward, uh, it was just considered more prudent to suspend the cause at the time. Well, but but now, uh, Monsignor, that those bankruptcy proceedings in Rochester are really wrapping up, what is they the are. status now and how might things proceed from here? I mean, it seems like the obstacles, at least the, the, the worries and concerns about the unknown, are now known. It's true. That's true. The, uh, when the window closed for, for reporting uh, cases of abuse, the statute of limitations waiver ended and the bankruptcy filing is nearing its completion. So we actually employed a law firm in New York that works with the different dioceses in the state. And we actually did a thorough review of every case that had been presented. And we were able to demonstrate that no case had been brought forward that in any way impugned Sheen. Uh, I think it's safe to say mm -hmm. that I don't think any cause for beatification has been subjected to more scrutiny than Archbishop Sheen, both ecclesiastically and civilly. And in all of this, not only has nothing been found to impugn Sheen, but I think his heroic virtues have been confirmed. As I would like to say, Sheen is clean, and we can prove that. Um, so we're, we're <laughs> I like that. confident that, about yeah. You yeah, should do up those T-shirts and sell them at the museum. Sheen is clean. Free the cause. So, That's what I'm going to start. That's going to be my banner here. The, throughout this process, Monsignor, um, have there been... Uh, any legitimate claims or accusations against the late Archbishop Sheen that would further delay no. his cause for saying yeah in no your, there there have in not your study yeah there have not and we're we're able to disprove any any questions about anything that would even be alleged um, so we're able to make that clear and in fact in September of 2022 um, then a group from Peoria we went over again just to present these renewed findings and uh, the research that had been done through the law firm and so we actually met with Cardinal Samararo and Saints we met with Cardinal Perlin Secretary of State and presented all this material. Mm -hmm. Rome was actually very clear that there's no problem in the Holy See uh, with this cause. The concerns have been raised on the, the other side of the pond. It's um, uh -huh. uh, members of the U.S. hierarchy. Yeah. And so out of just concern and an abundance of caution, there's just hesitation until mm -hmm. we feel like there's, there's no doubts remaining. 
But uh, if it takes the attorney well, general's I, report to, to demonstrate what we already know, what, we, what we've already proven, yeah. uh, we want to go forward with the unanimous support of the entire bishops' conference. And, and I'm sure that we'll get there. Well, I know I know there were some archbishops who were concerned, and it, it does connect to many of the things we're discussing, the bankruptcy proceedings and the, 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 the possibility of some connection to abuse here. So they put this on hold. But tell us about the other part of this, which is, um, at this point, Sheen already has the miracle in place. I mean, it's already been approved. So is that's, there any reason— from where you stand to hold up this cause and to stop him from being at least beatified at this point? It, it's really just a question of prudence. And uh, if, if, like I mentioned, the attorney general in New York has not released a report yet, uh, we know what's what the, has been reported. So we're confident that that's also going to vindicate Sheen. If we need to wait for that, mm -hmm. then um, it's we I'd like to go forward with uh, that unanimous support of all the bishops, which I'm sure we will have. And this will be the opportunity to beatify the first American born bishop uh, in the United States, as well as America's bishop, as he would have been called uh, back in the day when he was on television. Uh, Monsignor, uh, before I let you go, assuming these matters are settled, do you have any plans, do the foundation have any plans of bringing these findings before the entire body of bishops and getting them to just give it a final amen uh, so that it has their support when you go back to Rome? If there are any questions, we when we have all the documentation and we have all the proof. So if there's anything that we need to demonstrate, these are kind of sad things, and it's uh, it's just a, it's a very difficult time in the church um, to deal with cases of abuse. So I know it's not something that I think we want to dwell on, but if uh, if there's need for any clarity, we can offer it. We've we've got everything that that would be necessary to demonstrate uh, Sheen's heroic virtue, without a doubt. Yeah, well, we knew many of these things years ago that, you know, I know there were the allegations that, oh, there was an abuser in Rochester. But it turns out he 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 was Sheen pulled him out of ministry. It was the successor yeah. that returned him to it. So, um, as you said earlier, Monsignor, and I love the slogan, Sheen is clean. That's I right. love that. That's so right. we will leave it there. Please, uh, Monsignor Gray, keep us updated on this cause. We obviously want to see this go to the next level. And I know many of the people who watch not only our program, but EWTN, they continue to watch Archbishop Sheen. And he was so prophetic on so many fronts. Um, it would be a tragedy if this cause didn't move forward, given that no, and I'm he's met all I'm the I'm sure that it will. And uh, Sheen is someone that the church needs, I think, more today ever than ever. And so we look forward to having him beatified, which I know will happen. I'm confident of that. And we can say, God love you, as okay. Sheen himself would always say. <laughs> uh, I'll erase the chalkboard when you're done. For the latest on the Archbishop Sheen Foundation and the Servant of God, Fulton Sheen's Cause for Canonization, visit CelebrateSheen.com. Thank you, Monsignor. Excellent. Thank you. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week for a look at the new film Cabrini about St. Francis Xavier Cabrini. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thanks for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.